0: Hello, everybody. and Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Rob Heaton for New Books and Biblical Studies, where I focus on new and exciting scholarship in uh, New Testament and early Christian studies, the orbit of my own PhD. I'm delighted to welcome uh, Angela Kim Harkins as my guest today to discuss an early Christian text that is near and dear to my own heart, The Shepherd of Hermas, or Hermas, if we were pronouncing it uh, fully appropriately. Uh, I might say Hermas (laughs) throughout this, though. Uh, But we'll look into her unique approach to the way that this text immerses readers into its strange visionary episodes. Uh, Let me introduce my guest, first of all. Angela Kim Harkins earned her PhD from the University of Notre Dame in 2003 and is Professor of New Testament at Boston College's School of Theology and Ministry. Her research interests have focused on prayer in Second Temple Judaism and early Christianity, including the Hodayot or Thanksgiving hymns from the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran. Uh, Among her eight publications in the last decade are edited volumes on the Fallen Angels and the Watchers, uh, both of whom are known to us through apocryphal and pseudepigraphal texts. Uh, Angela was born in Seoul, uh, South Korea, and presently serves as lead editor of the Journal of Ancient Judaism. And I've also learned on her website that she has a dog named Chloe Kim Barkin, so uh, uh, that's a wonderful little tidbit about uh, our guest today. (laughs) On top of all this, uh, Angela is joining us from her home in the Boston area to discuss the publication of An Embodied Reading of the Shepherd of Hermes, The Book of Visions and its Role in Moral Formation, and it was published by Equinox Books last year, 2023. So Angela, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the New Books Network.
1: Okay, Thank you so much, Rob. It's great to meet you and to be with you this morning.
0: Ah, Absolutely. Um, So first of all, it's wonderful to be speaking with you about your book and, uh, you know, especially exciting to see all the attention that uh, is being given now to this obscure but very popular early Christian text known as the Shepherd uh, uh, that we call now the Shepherd of Hermas. Your previous work has touched on Jewish literature mainly, um, both that we encounter in the Hebrew Bible and or, you know, the Christian Old Testament and other texts that are considered pseudo piggerful with uh, uh, seemingly an interest in apocalyptic Jewish literature being high on your uh, uh, on your on your ladder there. Um, how did you come to turn your attention to the shepherd and ultimately write this book? Uh, and for our listeners who may not be familiar with Hermas and his uh, revelatory apparitions, can you give a brief overview of the shepherd and the place of the book of visions within it? Um, and what stood out to you the most when you came to this text?
1: okay so um you know i i have known about the shepherd and uh you know a lot of my work as you said has been mostly in jewish and early christian texts mostly prayers and apocalypses both of which are first person texts uh and use a lot of imagery so uh jewish Early Jewish prayer text actually is one of the larger categories or genres that we know about from the Dead Sea Scrolls. So it really increased our understanding of this particular, um, uh, an important type of writing. So I came to The Shepherd largely through an interest in first-person texts, visions, you might say, and also curiosity about apocalypses. I think, to the Shepherd of Hermas, what's interesting when I would uh, and you mentioned that there's this growing interest and sort of renaissance of shepherd studies, which is exciting. Um, As I was working on the shepherd for a few years, when I would mention to scholars that uh, this was the text that I've been uh, looking at recently, I noticed a number of strong responses from people. And I don't know if you've also had that experience. You know, people either really love or hate uh, the shepherd. And that's really reflected, too, in the scholarship on the shepherd. You know, modern scholars... Uh, have had their own strong views on this particular work. Oftentimes, uh, with the shepherd sort of coming up short in those discussions. <laughs> so um, indeed, yes. <laughs> so I, I think um, I talk in my book about uh, uh, you know Streeter, early uh, sort of New Testament scholar who compares. Uh, Hermas to the White Rabbit mm-hmm. in uh, Alice in Wonderland. And so it's not a it's sort of he behaves in some unseemly ways. And I think for modern scholars, it's a little bit um, it's an uncomfortable text. They don't they don't find it to be as gripping or as interesting as I do. Uh, and also, I think, in in discussions of apocalypses, which have really, um, I think, become more and more part of uh second temple jewish studies um Hermas is one of those texts that also uh, kind of falls short uh in those in those uh, discussions as well so um i think scholars even there's a scholar who even refers to the shepherd as a failed apocalypse mm-hmm. which you know is sort of <laughs> what a condemnation you know exactly. so so it's a very interesting text um for to work on because modern scholars, I think, have not received or appreciated the text um, uh, to the same degree that I think we might say ancient readers did. Mm-hmm. So in the ancient world, Hermas was quite popular, and it was definitely well known. We have a number of early Christian uh, thinkers who refer to this text. And uh, we know from Oxyrhynchus especially that there were a number of copies of uh, the Shepherd of Hermas. In fact, a number of those manuscripts uh, sort of rival our earliest copies of some canonical Gospels. Mm -hmm. So you know, that too is very interesting for me as a scholar, you know, why is it that modern scholars fail to appreciate this text um, or even to acknowledge, you know, uh, to the same degree what ancient readers uh, were sort of interested in. So that's sort of how I came to be interested in The Shepherd. Uh, it, it's an interesting first-person narrative text. This is, you know, kind of in my wheelhouse. It also raises some interesting questions for people who are working on apocalypses. Um, and so that that's really been uh a great project uh, I've had a great time with Hermas and and the kind of uh, foot journey that he's been taking um the Shepherd of Hermas you know just to give you a little bit of uh, mapping of this text it's one of the lengthiest works from the category of writings that we we know as we refer to traditionally as the Apostolic Fathers right so if you go to the Loeb classical library this is the Apostolic Fathers uh, sort of um, uh, volume, and uh, it's divided into three parts. The first part is really what I'm interested in. So that's what I wrote on the Book of Visions, where Hermas describes in first person, a series of visions there are five the fifth vision really sort of a bridge or segue into the following section of the mandates which is you know ethical instruction and then you have the third section called the similitudes or the parables so uh, all in all you know the shepherd is really significant large um, you know early christian writing perhaps one of the earliest texts that we might uh think of uh outside of the new testament And, um, I, I thought it, it really, you know, when you read about what scholars say about the shepherd, oftentimes I found it tended to be very sort of condensed, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense, it it tended to really be engaged in conversations about the canon, which I think is also really important topic, uh, in, in sort of our generation, you know, that, I would say from the 90s, 80s, 90s onward, you know, people very interested in looking at what was authoritative literature, what was canonical. These were important questions when I was in graduate school in the 90s. Um, people also, I think scholars tended to engage the shepherd with questions of socio-historical uh, kind of ecclesiastical um, history, so to speak. Uh, and I found that people did not really sort of answered this question you know about the popularity of the shepherd and they also didn't seem to engage the shepherd uh on the grounds really the basis in which i think most early christian uh thinkers uh, actually record it as a, a catechetical work mm-hmm. right so so people i think modern scholars it seemed to be i perceived this sort of disconnect between what modern scholars saw and appreciated about the shepherd and what I saw early Christian thinkers sort of acknowledging and appreciating about the shepherd. And so that's what made it a great research project. Um, in the book, I'm really focusing just on the Book of Visions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I kind of like gesture, I kind of gesture toward the things that followed the Book of Visions. And um and really it's the mandates or mm-hmm. kind of ethical instruction. Mm-hmm. And so that, that for me was important. You know, I, I'm very aware that as modern scholars, we tend to divide and uh, analyze ancient writings in our own kind of disciplinary ways, you know, things that we're comfortable with or the kind of training that we happen to have. So, um, you know, that question, what is the really ultimately, uh, The question for me was, what is the relationship between these visions and the text that follows, namely this ethical instruction? So um, the idea for the book is really to propose that modern scholars um, sort of are trained to read in discipline specific ways and that these discipline specific ways oftentimes prevent us from seeing what ancient readers uh, enjoyed and appreciated about this work. Uh, and so the modern scholars with the book of visions looking for references to uh, historical figures, right. Um, or looking for uh, some idea of what did the church look like at this time? I think that that's the socio historical aspect. Um, and really what, what my project is, um, pointing out that that discipline-specific ways of reading for history or for theology or for um, those kinds of genre questions, that those discipline-specific approaches kind of require us to read a narrative against the grain of the text. Mm-hmm. So in order to get that information, sometimes we have to push against the narrative in a way that I don't think ancient readers did. Uh, And so the approach that I use in this book, I use uh, a number of different approaches from cognitive literary theory, Mm -hmm. but there's one scholar whose work, uh, and most of these people, cognitive literary theorists oftentimes are working in these larger fields of literature, uh, and so we don't have many uh, who work in biblical studies, but um, Alphenbein, I don't know if I'm saying his name correctly. correctly or not but you know his point that um we read that scholars read against the grain of a narrative and they they fail to enjoy what what made literature enjoyable we mm-hmm. fail to appreciate I should say we fail to appreciate what made uh, a text enjoyable to a reader in its in its era and so that i think really for me when i thought about the shabra i thought yeah that that's really what i think might be happening here and so I hope that the book helps us to see the Shepherd with uh new eyes sort of what that was one of my early titles for the book but I think mm. people
0: <laughs> fell by the wayside huh? <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> so um, but anyway, so that's just sort of a long-winded um you know explanation for where my interest in the Shepherd sort of fit how that fit into my larger, sort of um, background in ancient Jewish prayers and Apocalypses.
0: Oh, wonderful. That's a great introduction <laughs> to all of the topics that I asked you about in, in, in the opening question. And it's absolutely a vexing book when it comes to issues of genre and expectations that we might carry into um, early Christian literature about uh, quote-unquote normative theology or any of the other expectations that we bring to uh, a book like this. And um, I fully see how it fits in with your previous interest in apocalypses because uh, there's uh, the, a lot of revelatory activity especially early in the book of visions uh, that we will get into as we continue our conversation here. Um, As I read your book, uh, I saw a a unique contribution as you were sort of mentioning here to the shepherd of Hermas as the uh, application of these cognitive literary theories, which come themselves from, you know, modern psychological studies of reading. So you apply these to uh, this ancient text and that's, you know, well reflected in your titles, embodied reading of the shepherd, as well as your discussion of uh, an active reading, reading, and your attention to the ordinary details, perhaps, of Hermes' experiences, like his observation of the sun shining, or the field of grass that he's walking in, and so on. Uh, Can you uh, say a word about what uh, cognitive literary theory entails for us, first of all? Um, You know, the different elements that you bring into the book, and how all this conspires to, I think, as you say, activate readers' minds to participate in the narrative uh, of the, you know, the story world of a book like The Shepherd.
1: Okay, so um, I, I've been interested in cognitive approaches because I feel that they offer um a way to integrate different aspects of what it is to be a flesh and blood reader of an ancient text. Um, and the type of approach that I use is uh, relies on an understanding of cognition and call an activism, which goes back to something from the early 90s um, about the embodied mind. Uh, and so it really refers to a much broader kind of um, perspective than just what literary theorists are, are taking from it. Um, but it is a, a kind of uh, alternative, it, an activism is a kind of alternative to uh, what we think of as a representational approach. So an activism highlights much more the constructive and participatory process of um. Uh, cognition and also um uh the imagination so uh my interest with it is uh an, an active reading actually does rely quite a bit on the what we understand of the cognitive process of visual perception Uh, which makes it a a nice uh, approach for visions to look at a text that's Mm -hmm. describing different visions, like the book of visions. So um, if I just say a little bit about that, uh, the cognitive science of visual perception and embodied reading sort of focuses in on the common experience that we might have, that when we see something, we take it in like a photograph. Um, But for Cognitive scientists who study visual perception, they would say, well, actually your eye is is focusing in on specific data points. uh, And that what happens in our mind, in our imagination is that we extend and complete those discrete focus points of attention uh, in order to construct a coherent scene, like a photograph. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, uh, so literary theorists take this information about what we know about those cognitive processes and extend it to the reading of narrative. Um, the particular cognitive literary theorist that I used and I and I have found to be really helpful is uh, Marco Caracciolo who also does quite a bit of work on fantasy literature, which if you think about fantasy, texts and apocalypses they share of course this idea that you're talking about a landscape or experiences that are sort of out of the ordinary that you know places that nobody has seen or experiences that nobody has had before so the it was compatible in that sense and in that approach it's really the first person voice and sort of descriptions of the characters Uh, proprioception and interoception that contribute to the immersive qualities of reading narrative. So proprioception would refer to the kind of kinesthetic language about a particular character. Uh, So Hermas sort of walking or Hermas' experiences of falling on his knees. You know, any kind of reference to the extended body moving through space or a kind of... um, uh, sort of uh, uh interacting with his environment you know those types of references are are important uh, and also interoceptive experiences which are you know referred to sort of interior experiences that um if you think about the skin and viscera those types of experiences um that are both expressed and also uh uh, experiences that are taken in through the skin and viscera. So, things like um, emotions, but also uh, expressions of emotions like goosebumps or uh, blushing or sweating or uh, trembling mm-hmm. or weeping, you know, those types of experiences are interoceptive. That these are proprioception and interoceptive uh, details are what contribute to a reader's sort of um you know uh, a reader being able to access that narrative world and to sort of uh find it to be a kind of immersive experience. Does that make Just, sense? And I think with Hermas yeah. we do get quite a bit about his anxiety, his yeah. worry. Uh he talks about um you know his trembling, his tears, you know, things like that that I think make make uh, the approach uh, sort of uh, uh, fitting
0: so. it absolutely does make sense and uh, although you do um you know mention that a photograph is a bad way to think of memories to use a metaphor a certain metaphor hermes paints a picture for his readers for his audience that they can you know participate in and uh, feel like they're um, in that story world perhaps um, yeah
1: he gives us these little these little um kind of uh flashpoints of what's going on and then we extend I think we actually as readers we do a lot more constructive work and sort of making a coherent scene from the details that he gives us
0: wonderful thinking about the shepherd and the way that we the ways that we have discussed that it, we know that it's popular in antiquity um uh, I think our our work, mine and yours, both share a goal of understanding the popularity of this text in antiquity. We could talk about it from multiple angles, but one go-to measure is usually its existence in manuscript copies that are dated before, you know, the fourth century, before Christianity uh, becomes somewhat theologically normalized under the impetus of the Roman emperors and uh, other factors as well. Uh, but on my reading of your book, I think you see its popularity as relating to the ways that, for one, Hermes sort of grips readers into an entertaining narrative world, Um, and then number two, also he gives voice to sort of common emotional states that all human beings have. Uh, such as unrequited love or lust or grief. And uh, for a third, he kind of offers this not threatening, and in fact, a socially comforting view on the place and demeanor and how someone would behave if they're a manumitted slave in the Roman world as Hermas, um, you know, uh, uh, claims to be. Uh, Can you give examples of these different factors playing into the shepherd's popularity and also any that I missed from your uh, from your book in this brief recap?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, there I mean, it's a big question. Yes. Uh, the, <laughs> the, the gripping sort of narrative. Well, I think it's just it's just sort of um, there, I would just say if you, if you read through the book of visions, there are places where, um, you know, Hermas comes across as sort of a vulnerable person. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a scene where um, he takes a seat you know, and the lady in the vision says, no, no, not there. Don't sit there, sit here, you know, and you sort of really feel for him. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh Like, Terrible. He must be so embarrassed, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, at this point, uh, you know, but, and you see his temerity and his uh, hesitation. So there, there's some things like that, that uh, in some way, he has this kind of servile uh, sub- subservient kind of, you know, personality that I think um, is engaging. And some of it is, I think, a little bit exaggerated. But there are those scenes like that, which engage both motion, right? He's getting up and he's moving over, uh, you know, um, but they also engage his perhaps worry or uh, self-consciousness, his anxiety uh, as well, that, that I think help us as a reader to notice and to, to kind of, in some ways, you know, empathize a little bit with, with what's going on. Um, There are also places that I think are humorous in, in the book of visions that I think, you know, modern scholars tend not to appreciate the humor or the exaggeration in those passages. Uh, For example, in the vision of the beast, which, you know, I, I think you know, the tendency for people who work in apocalypses uh, is, of course, to think of a beast as something large and terrifying. Um, But this particular beast, I think, is described in such a way as to um, highlight how it really can't possibly do any physical harm uh, to a person. It's described as a sea creature, but of course, it's on this uh, it's on the it's on the road, a right. kind of dusty road, by the way. So it's not just a, any road, but it's like a dust, uh, really dry, really dry road, uh, and the sun is really hot, right? So all of the things that would uh, dry out. A sea creature of course and his mouth is open and his tongue is hanging out and there are also these flies coming out of his mouth. So it's a huge I mean it's a it's an enormous monster, enormous beast. But the way it's described, I think is intended to um you know it sort of exaggerates how it's not really going to do anyone any harm um or immediate harm. But we see Hermas and they're deeply worried you know, of course, as you should be um, by what he sees. Uh, and the woman that he encounters, a different woman in this scene, sort of asking him in a, you know, did you see anything on the <laughs> right. way over here? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, and it's sort of, and, and of course he he talks about the terror that he experiences and so on and so forth. So, So for example, you know, that kind of, uh, scene, you know, clearly that she imparts, you know, and, and gives a kind of, uh, you know, revelatory type of, uh, account. But in the book, I talk about how, uh, scholars, uh, tended to read her, uh, speech and, and read the beast in light of that. And mm-hmm. that scholars would actually, um, sort of take this as a scary moment but i think actually it's it's supposed to be humorous the way that
0: you, the way that you describe it uh, um, gives sort of a children's literature quality to it. Uh, the, the, the way that the 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 woman speaks almost in like a teacherly voice. What did you see, and and what happened, and so on and so forth. Uh, and it, it it could be read almost as a parody of uh, you know an idea that there's a beast that's able to harm someone because Hermes just walks right by it, uh, pr- protected of course by the angel Thagri, I believe.
1: Yes, Thagri. That's right. So, so, so these are, yeah, those are, I, I think it's just, it's a kind of um, sort of humorous moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think scholars tend to, tend to overlook that. The scene closes, you know, book four, I mean, the vision in in book four closes with exactly these words. I turned around out of fear, thinking that the beast was coming, you know, so it sort of closes with this sort of image of Hermas is still to his core uh you know expressing those servile tendencies of you know lacking courage and mm-hmm. and
0: fortitude so Yeah,
1: I think it's entertaining. It's supposed to be entertaining.
0: It is. And it's also important to highlight the details as you do. I think that uh, when we read The the Shepherd, uh, we want to get through it. It's a long book. We want to get to, you know, (laughs) the meat and potatoes, and we bypass these uh, uh, very interesting details. So you you do a great job at uh, exploring that in your book. Um, I also observed in your book how many times you categorize The Shepherd as a catechetical text. Uh, That is one that's useful for preparatory instruction of newcomers to Christianity, in the early centuries, um, and your subtitle talks about the role of the Book of Visions in moral formation as well. So I guess it was a little surprising that you didn't delve necessarily into the quality of the text's moralizing aims, as you put it, at much length. Um, and I think at one point you even suggest that the book is not indicative of a serious genre, which I'm cu- curious to hear more about. Um, Beyond that, can you discuss the basis first for classifying this text as catechetical in nature? Where does that come from? And if you perceive that anyone commentating on the book from antiquity might have perceived it to be more serious than, uh, than we might come to it today, uh, more than the catechesis. And furthermore, what kind of moral formation do you think Hermes is interested in developing within his uh, readers and hearers?
1: Well, here I, I think the catechetical uh, genre of the work, you know, just comes from those early Christian references uh, to the shepherd that they're mm-hmm. aware of it, that it's uh, uh, you know useful for instruction, but we shouldn't use it in in worship, you know, publicly. That these are these are just things that you know I think are part of how Shepherd had been um, remembered or recognized in the ancient world um so you know that aspect is not something that i'm applying that reference or that i sort of created that reference uh but i i saw that as sort of an ancient Mm -hmm. sort of understanding of this particular uh work and what it was known about that that passage you talk about on page 160 um here you know i just want to give a little bit more context for that particular passage, uh, and I'll just sort of read from the passage uh, itself, if that's okay. Sure. Um, i just say, uh, modern scholars often carry certain expectations about religious writings that then influence how such narrative details are appreciated. And when modern scholars read ancient apocalypses and catechetical literature as serious genres, they overlook the way in which ancient authors sought above all to make the writing appealing to ancient readers. And humor and exaggeration were essential components for memorable storytelling. Furthermore, these elements can create conditions in which what is seen and heard is more easily retained and remembered, an important effect for, catechete- for a catechetical work like The Shepherd. So, so that idea that um, modern scholars, and here, this is the vision of the beast, mm-hmm. who think of apocalypses as this a very serious genre, which, you know, I agree, this is, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not going to look for humor in, in most apocalypses, except for you know, the book of visions here, but that um, uh, the expectation that we have certain scholarly, we're certain sort of trained as scholars to think about certain genres uh, in a particular way uh as serious genres so to speak that's what I was uh, referring to there uh where instruction especially instruction about uh moral moral teachings or about uh matters that we think are serious matters um that they would somehow not have a humorous or entertaining quality to to them. So I was sort of um, again, it's sort of one of the themes of the of the book is that modern scholars, when we bring our own expectations about what a particular type of writing should look like, mm-hmm. sometimes we tend to overlook uh, these details that I think were important for the ancient reader.
0: Okay, very good. Um, so the very beginning of The Shepherd, uh, that would be Vision One, is a really interesting episode. It, it uh, kind of sets the, it charts the course for the rest of the book in, in some ways. And there's been some really important work interpreting it both by yourself and an Italian scholar, Emanuela Castelli. Uh, but basically, the book opens by referencing the protagonist, Hermes's former enslaved status and his encounter with a woman who he sees bathing in the Tiber River in Rome. His uh, reaction to the episode uh, and what is revealed to him by uh, a heavenly lady drives the narrative that follows. It you know informs him of his own sin in this situation, and you know causes him to reckon with how he could possibly be saved in this in, in, in light of his uh, subconscious sin. Can you uh, delve into this passage a little bit for us as it appears in the Shepherd for our listeners? Um, and especially maybe appealing to your interoceptive reading of Hermes' emotional state, sort of the details that he recognizes, and uh, explain how you bring in the uh, Roman sculptures of Venus, which I thought was a really interesting uh, way to make this scene even more vivid for us, and any analogous Mm -hmm. scenes from Jewish and Roman texts of women bathing and forbidden viewing, uh, as it were.
1: Yeah, so the, the book opens with this really tantalizing image it's so brief uh and it's uh very memorable of course because it, it's sort of a literary trope that we see yes. recurring and in, mm-hmm. in not just Jewish uh writings but also in other you know uh classical writings so um this this idea that uh Hermas sees a woman bathing in the Tiber River he actually gives her Right, his hand, to help her come out of the river. And uh, it says, when I observed her beauty, I began thinking in my heart, or reasoning in my heart, quote, I would be fortunate to have a wife of such beauty and character, and quote. This is all I had in mind. Nothing else. You really have this this sense that he's sort of denying something. Even at the very beginning. Uh, And so, uh, this scene I think especially is one that is a good is a great example of how mod you know this sort of inactive reading, the kind of participatory but also highly constructive uh reading process that uh, we go through. Um, because Ma- I think you know we have these really fragmentary details about what happened there at the river uh notice Hermas is talking in the first person voice he talks about the proprioception his own bodily movement he makes contact with her by uh, extending his hand and then we have these sort of interior uh, kind of thoughts uh and so uh but modern scholars I think you know see these fragments or these details and they extended and completed this scene based on what they know of their own modern world and how women should behave in the modern world. A good good Christian woman, for example. <laughs> so um this question, Martin Leutsch, you know, in uh, you know, a sort of is quite critical of of this uh, scene, what self-respecting woman would uh, allow a man who is not her husband to help her come out of the water uh, in that way and, and this is a kind of a view that is repeated, you know, I think among modern scholars. So it, it sort of illustrates that sort of um, process that we go through as readers that we extend and complete what we know of uh, a woman who uh, sh- what she should or should not do in such a scenario. What I propose is that, well, when we try to think about what would an ancient reader, how would they how might they extend and complete this scene? Uh, you know, all we have is really a naked woman bathing in an open body of water uh, and that you have Hermas sort of there, being able to see everything, right? being able to to see what's going on. So, You know, I propose that perhaps what we should be thinking is uh, some of those commonplace images of women bathing that would have been all over the Roman world. You know, uh, images of Venus bathing, uh, which would have been uh, there in the bathhouses, but also just as part of the uh, sort of typical... um, statuary for the Roman Empire and of course we know that such statues were commonplace but that they also aroused desire right so we Mm -hmm. have classical writings that speak about this um you know Ovid of course talks about how uh, statues can you know give a very uh elaborate and uh, you know the whole narrative of course with uh the statue of the goddess in in his metamorphosis. You know, there are many, many places where uh, statuary, the provocative poses uh, of the statues, um, I think may be the kind of image that an ancient reader would have on a day-to-day basis encountered um, or associated with uh, this kind of scene in the Tiber River, right, with Rome. Tiber, of course, is... Mm -hmm. Uh, reference to Rome, mm-hmm. so that's that's sort of what I propose. That, and again, you know, the ideas that embodied reading. I'm not, I'm not just talking about ancient readers. I'm really critiquing how modern readers uh, take these details and they sort of supply the gaps with uh, their own assumptions about how the world works mm-hmm. or what's what's uh, acceptable or unacceptable, um, and so that. That example, I think, highlights, you know, the very different types of maybe ordinary experiences that uh, we might imagine an ancient reader associating with with Rome.
0: Mm-hmm. Th- these uh, are important questions. The important questions that you bring up about uh, how we read uh, these texts and who do we judge and how do we, and and what do we imagine from them to have been historical or or not. And that that brings me to my next question because we've been talking about Hermas pretty much so far as if he was a real person. Uh, however, you kind of uh, eschew that uh, in in certain cases in, in your book. So uh, you say, for example, that there is no Hermas apart from the one who is enacted by. By the reader and constructed mm-hmm. in his or her imagination which i think is sort of an appeal to uh, reader response criticism literary criticism for perhaps but um in the context of ancient readers and hearers i wonder uh, for example if we have any examples of people understanding hermes or his narrative as as a f- you know a fictional vision is he is he is he is he um uh, just uh, giving an entertaining episode or or did they understand this to have happened and you also point out that hermas with his um you know his expressions of servile qualities and his emotions doesn't exactly meet the expected traits for the masculine roman man the, the sensibilities that they have about masculinity in ancient rome Uh, So um, I wonder, uh, talking about fiction versus history, what happened, could this odd combination of factors that play into this person, Hermas, suggest the preservation of an actual person's idiosyncrasies rather than sort of strategic posturing to uh, increase the uh, reception of this book or the entertaining value of this book?
1: Well, I think, you know, again, that's the sort of that historical question that's a kind of disciplinary specific question, right, that drives a lot of biblical scholars. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I know that that's an important question for people. For me, uh, it's not a question that I think we can uh, answer from the Book of mm-hmm. Visions, you know, and Hermas is only mentioned in the Book of Visions. Right. So. So for in my view, uh, I'm a little bit less optimistic that the reference and the descriptions of this individual can be used to construct a historical figure. Um, I do think we, you know, I just don't think we have enough data. We mm-hmm. just don't have, based on this, this text, um, what we need to sort of say that this was a historical figure and that he had these experiences experiences as they're described here in this narrative so Mm -hmm. so I I I focus in my study really more you know that again part of that in activism that we are Mm -hmm. constructing uh, the narrative world by extending and completing these details in our imagination Uh, and the same goes for the character so um the idea that characters in some ways we we read about Hermas certainly as as a character as we might uh think about encountering a historical person like i meet you rob and Mm -hmm. i and i uh you know can see you and i and i have a sense of who you are as a person but actually with the narrative we know even more than we would if we were just merely encountering a historical person, right? We actually know what Hermas wrestles with, mm-hmm. uh, his his um, anxiety, his struggles deep within, right? So we, we're sort of still that omniscient reader in some ways, right? Uh, as we read this text, it's a little bit different from uh, encountering a historical figure. Although I do think that the way in which the story gives us, again, those um, detailed, uh, you know, references to his proprioception, his interoception, that it contributes to the vividness of who mm-hmm. this figure is. So I do think that, rhetorically speaking, that the character of Hermas is, mm-hmm. is, you know, I would say, vividly presented. Mm-hmm. But, but I tend to see it also as more, a little bit more exaggerated in the presentation as well so you know it kind of goes back to even what Streeter noticed about Hermas being this kind of uh you know white rabbit type figure which you know is a great great quote you know we might say it's unfair to Hermas (laughs) in some ways because perhaps we don't we don't like that but um but it's not just something that I would say I observe the, these exaggerated details about Hermas's personality, but that other people have also noticed about uh, about Hermas. So, so I think that question of history. I just don't think. I for me, uh, I just don't think I have the evidence to point to that based on this text.
0: Um, I fully understand. I, but I know
1: that a lot of people, I know a lot of people are interested in that. And
0: so. the, the, the church has perhaps consciously forgotten this person Hermes, and there's been attempts to reconstruct him as a historical person, perhaps a, a rival of Clement uh, in, in early in early Rome. Um, we'll bypass uh, uh, any other uh, discussion of uh, Hermes as a historical person, because um, however we, try to understand this person existing in history. There's no doubt that he records some unique visions, such as the tower in uh, uh, vision 3 and the great beast that we already talked about in vision 4. Um, You call attention to many details that are outside of the, you know, the meat and potatoes of these visions that, you know, conspire to bring the vividness to life for readers and hearers. Uh, for the vision of the tower, for example, which you know is sort of a portrait of salvation, you want to be included in this tower when the end comes, to, uh, as a, as a sign that you are among the uh, saved. What have we missed about the vision of the tower uh, when we focus on offering you know sort of the theological interpretation of it, uh, the angels and so on? What is so significant about the journey to the tower uh, that Hermas spends sort of an inordinate amount of time on at the opening of Vision Three? And do you see any connection from this to later genres of, you know, tours of heaven and hell that are so common to pseudepigraphal literature?
1: Okay, so, uh, well, the tower, I think, is really a key vision, right, for the for the Book of Visions. And um, what I focus is not so much the tower, although I think the stones are very vividly presented and there's a lot of kinesthetic uh, description there. But what I focus on in my discussion is really more the tedious details building up (laughs) to the Mm -hmm. tower, you know, exactly the things that um, most, you know, uh, scholars tend to ignore, or uh, they of course notice it, and they describe, and it sort of leads to their assessment that the shepherd is a monotonous and boring text. Yeah. you know. So, um, but really, for me, when I saw some of those, what I would call assessments of the literary quality of the shepherd, you know, as being boring or monotonous or tedious, you know, I thought immediately of this kind of uh scene, and I wondered why, why would an ancient author take the time to to include this you know the work is so lengthy you know why would this be part of the why would this you know have such a significant get so much airtime so mm-hmm. to speak um uh, you know before this tower which is what really what i think most people most readers are probably interested in so i, I think it is about sort of generating those predispositions within uh the reader of watchfulness these are things that you know again the story of the book of visions is about a foot journey and just as you walk through a space that uh, you haven't walked through before you you're sort of highly aware of the the things that you might uh see the surprises or the encounters that might happen along the way so um the elaborate sort of description of this nighttime very, very lengthy watching and waiting. This is what Hermas is doing. And in some ways the story is told uh, in a way that sort of recreates or simulates that um, anticipation, that watchfulness within the reader. The cultivating those, um, that kind of experience of watchfulness, I think is something that we should appreciate more in apocalypses. Uh, in general, you know, like how is it that you build up, you know, and you get you get the reader to pay attention, Uh, and they're sort of doing it here in vision number three with the um, the ivory couch, the darkness uh, in the field, sort of um, they sort of do that in real time, I would say. (laughs) You know, what does it matter that? Uh, this ivory, you know, is the ivory couch. is going to have play a key role in this? Story? It, it doesn't seem to. Right. It just seems to be, you know, again, something uh, just like if you're walking on an actual foot journey, you know, you pay attention to things that you might see, you're curious about them. Uh, and you have this little diversion, but it's really kind of contributing to the protractedness of this particular episode. And so in my in my book, I really think, uh, you know, I propose that this is something that is a kind of experiential effect of the way the narrative is written. That uh, the author, in some ways, has this uh, very extended and, and very slow kind of um, uh, field, narrative, you know, journey narrative, nighttime journey narrative in order to really heighten anticipation but also to heighten that quality or aspect of watchfulness in the reader uh in the person who might be hearing the text but you know but definitely to cultivate those um sort of readerly dispositions I would say I would call them readerly dispositions even if you're hearing the text I think it's still that kind of um, type of experience
0: very nice. Uh, it, there's a lot of buildup in, in the uh, build third, up, yes. in the third vision <laughs> that, uh, you know, uh, yeah. it kind of reaches a climax when you get to the tower and you get the explanation of what the stones represent and, you know, why there are mm-hmm. certain stones that don't fit in it and how Hermas fits into that whole uh, discussion with um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, with the woman. Yeah. Um,
1: and and I think in the field, too, you have, you know, Hermas talks about his interoception, right? He says he's seized with trembling his hair stood on end, he's terrified, he's alone, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, he collapses on his knees, and he starts praying. So, you know, like, it's very much, you know, you get this real sense of his interior uh, sort of state through that, through those types types of details.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) Um, Your last chapter, Angela, attends to Mm -hmm. the difficulty of genre categorization, uh, when yes. it comes to the shepherd, uh, obviously one of the vexing questions that we mentioned before, this book has most of the hallmarks of the sort of classical, definition of apocalyptic literature by John J. Collins from the 1970s, I believe, is where that comes from, and he's recently updated it as well. But uh, yet, uh, The Shepherd is typically characterized as missing out on certain distinctions or dimensions of apocalypticism, such as like the the idea of this world versus an other world to come, um, and that we you know might know famously from uh, the canonical revelation and its hymns and heavenly visions. Do you personally, as a scholar, uh, consider the Shepherd an apocalyptic text and why? And how have you proposed that we handle the scholarly necessity of genre classification when it comes to a text like this to be more inclusive of different varieties of visionary texts from antiquity?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think this is an important uh, question for scholars like me who come at, you know, because I precisely because my interest was apocalypse is still you know apocalypses mm-hmm. and uh you know what what do we do with texts like Hermas, you know that don't fit into our modern uh, expectations. So uh, the the definition is is by uh, John Collins is so often cited and and his work is really so foundational and so important for how we think about apocalypses. Um, I'll just uh, read it. Um Collins's uh you know Simea uh, discussion from 1979, uh quote, Apocalypse is a genre of revelatory literature with a narrative framework in which a revelation is mediated by an otherworldly being to the human recipient, disclosing a transcendent reality which is both temporal insofar as it envisages eschatological salvation and spatial insofar as it involves another supernatural world, quote So, so this definition, I think it was huge, you know, like for most of biblical scholarship, people were not even looking at apocalypses, you know, uh, they were sort of an awkward genre, you know, it was really with, I think the work of scholars like John Collins and Adela Collins, you know, that they really became, and of course the growing, increasing, uh, interest in second temple studies, you know, where apocalypses really, uh, started to get more and more attention. And so uh, we really have a great debt to uh, these scholars, and for for trying to you know um, create that foundation for our later discussions. Some of the things that I find about the the idea of how people how scholars categorize apocalypses uh, is, I think, uh, and Collins I think also points out that these are scholarly designations. You know, these are these are not um internal right to the ancient understanding of the genre but these are later modern scholarly uh tools that Mm -hmm. we use to analyze this very Mm -hmm. broad type of literature so it's a modern construction service to scholars at the Academy uh is that I think it it tends to highlight this kind of segregation of our world and the supernatural world and I think Hermas in some ways because that's a part of the definition I think um it it, that aspect of the definition I think says more about us as modern scholars Mm. uh than it does uh to help us understand a text like Hermas uh the shepherd you know the book of visions uh and that uh you know it it's it's the case that I think um that this desire to highlight that movement from the here which is this world out into the other world mm-hmm. right like we have with many heavenly journey uh texts or journeys to the other place right mm-hmm. <laughs> but the highlighting is always that we leave our present place i don't know i've kind of wondered if this is Sort of rooted in, you know, our own kind of desire to explore other realms that we have in the 20th century. You know that that's a huge cultural marker of our of our century of the 20th century is this desire to explore these uh, new spaces, um, and that we perhaps are overemphasizing that movement, right of of leaving. Mm-hmm. Our space the, the shepherd i think because the visions take place you know it has these other features i think are very similar it, um you know, maybe not the seriousness again i go back to that uh, term it doesn't have that kind of serious quality but it does enjoy other uh, literary features that i think you know apocalypses share um, and so i think we should still uh include it in our discussion of apocalypses, because you know it's talking about those visionary experiences. Um, I'm trying to remember what else. Uh, I So I do, I, I would say, I do consider it uh, an apocalyptic text. I think it's interesting. Um, I would say we should be more critical of our scholarly desire to compartmentalize, exactly. to segregate our yes. world from uh, the supernatural world. Uh, and there are all sorts of things, you know, like um, our our modern academic desire to have these pure systems. That, of course, in this world, we we have an expectation that it's a pure system in which there is no like um, supernatural involvement. Mm-hmm. But here, the shepherd's experiences is exactly the opposite. Yes, right? It, it sort of underscores how um, you know. This world that we live in, the ordinary world, we actually do have those heavenly encounters and that they take place on a foot journey, which is, again, very grounded in this world. Right. So in that sense, it's a lot more like Luke 24, uh, you know, sort of that, that last scene in the gospel. The road Luke, to Emmaus, yes, yes. Yeah. Or or scenes like I, I was kind of thinking about Jim Kugel's discussion of a moment of confusion uh, where he says the biblical text, he's talking about the Hebrew Bible, sort of fades in and out, and, and you see that the person who's having the vision is at first confused about well what's happening, right? Is it, uh, you know, is it just a, a smoke or is there actually some kind of encounter that's taking place? So, so that I thought, I thought like Kugel's description, I thought well that kind of biblical idea of encountering uh, a figure is. One that doesn't rely on that otherworldly uh, you know sort of compartmentalized space, and so i I found it to be a little bit more useful um and I also think the inactive approach in which the the description the descriptive term is not so much other this worldly otherworldly, but the descriptive term is really more the narrative world mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm I'm more in favor of kind of shifting into that type of um, uh, kind of category, if that makes sense.
0: Yes. Um, Now, I personally haven't done nearly the work on genre that you have, so I definitely sat up and took notice to this uh, chapter. I think I'll use it in the future. But uh, I think that uh, the canonical revelation has, you know, held a little bit too much of a sway for how we view apocalypses, like that has, is some way, in some way normative for us, that we need to have all the elements of, you know, uh, the last book of the New Testament for it to be uh, sort of an authentic apocalypse. But instead, in the Book of Visions, as you, as you note, uh, Hermes's kind of authority comes entirely from the visions that he receives, and that he can report for the benefit of his family, community and you know others uh, so uh i'm with you that it should be uh, categorized within apocalypse and we should uh, broaden our uh, our definitional standards perhaps um angela this has been a great conversation it's been wonderful to talk to you and um uh, I'm wondering, uh, even though we've talked for about an hour or so, uh, if there's anything that we've missed in this discussion that you wanted to emphasize from the long process that it is to prepare and write a book like this. Were there any things that was there anything that was very surprising to you as, that you encountered in your research and writing process, or anything else that you want to mention uh, uh, from your book that uh, is important to bring to readers uh, or our listeners' dis- uh, attention?
1: Yeah. Um, well, I enjoyed working on. The Shabbat of Hermas, and I hope people will uh, take a, a good close look at the text. I, I think perhaps what was surprising to me was uh, just seeing how modern scholars tended to sort of describe it as monotonous mm-hmm. and you know and boring, you know, and yet they would write a 900-page commentary, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I and I kind of made me think, wow, what is it that that moves us or pushes us in our disciplinary habits to mm-hmm. you know? to write mm-hmm. uh, 900 page, I, I think it's brocks you know, it's yes. write a, a significant commentary like that um you know on a work that we're not engaged by so mm-hmm. sort of that was surprising to me that um you know uh i would hope that um our work would be more stimulating to ourselves personally and I, I don't know if that's the kind of obviously the stimulation for the for the um for that particular scholar, I think it lay, lay somewhere else, you mm-hmm. know, besides the, the text itself. But I think that that's probably what was most surprising, uh, was to see how, how really striking that mm-hmm. difference was between how modern scholars might look at a particular text uh, and to see how ancient scholars, uh, ancient readers, ancient, you know, uh, ancient people, how they maybe appreciated and enjoyed a text for totally different reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I hope that um, people will take a second look. I hope modern readers will take a second look at The Shepherd and try to read it on its own terms. Um, I I did a lot of work on The Shepherd during the pandemic, mm. <laughs> where you had a lot of time on your own. Yeah. Um, but also uh, during uh, you know Black Lives Matter, uh when it was clear that different people based on their uh you know cultural context saw the same thing uh quite differently right uh and because we saw how the country became very polarized during that time uh and so again that idea it the approach an active reading made a lot of sense to me that, you know, we bring our own experiences to how we fill in the gaps of what happened in this particular encounter, Um, and that perhaps we're doing that when we read texts, you Mm -hmm. know, seems like a very likely uh,
0: thing as well. Indeed. Well, you bring up uh, the comments of of Streeter, you know, an early 20th century scholar, and uh, Mm -hmm. uh, I took note of the translator in the Anti-Nicene Fathers volume, who also is kind of repulsed by the book, even though he's just translated the whole thing for us. (laughs) But there are even modern scholars who carry on this uh, sort of derisive way of uh, referring to the shepherds. So that's why it's so thrilling to speak to someone who is entertained and interested in the appeal of this text. So uh, um, I'm very glad to have read your book, and yeah. I hope that listeners will uh, uh, come to it as well.
1: Yeah. And and as a close, closing thought, is it okay if I just
0: of make a little
1: mention of uh, other works that are coming out on The Shepherd? Of course, um, go for it. I I uh, wanted to say there's a volume published by De Greater Press called Experiencing the Shepherd of Hermas, edited by um, me and my friend and colleague Carrie Meyer. Uh and uh here we have a number of different uh essays throughout the volume that uh are really trying to look at the shepherd uh with new eyes. And so I hope readers who are interested in the shepherd would also take a look at that volume. It's published in two thousand twenty two in the Ecstasis series.
0: But- oh, wonderful, wonderful. Um out of curiosity, Angela, are you continuing to work on the shepherd or where have you turned your attention um after the publication of your most recent book?
1: Well, now I'm working on um, a project on apocalypses as immersive narratives. So looking at some of the, uh, using the method of embodied reading to think about how the immersive quality of apocalypses can help us to understand their generative power, Mm -hmm. you know, and the way in which the apocalypses, um, the people, people not only did they extend and construct the details that they see in apocalypses, uh, to construct a coherent scene, but that they also wanted to continue some of those narratives. And perhaps uh, this led to the generation of new texts about these scenes or about these characters.
0: So I imagine at the very least, you'll be appealing to your work on the shepherd and how it, it yes. is, uh, oh. you know, an immersive narrative and yeah. it generates yes, a, an entertaining value for, uh, uh, for its readers. Well, that's excellent. Yes. Um, so, uh, Angela Kim Harkins, thank you for being our guest on the New Books Network today. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you about Hermes's visions and so many other things.
1: Thank you so much, Rob. It's great to be here.
0: Wonderful. Again, Dr. Harkins' book is an embodied reading of the Shepherd of Hermas uh, with a subtitle, The Book of Visions and Its Role in Moral Formation, available now from Equinox Books. I've been Rob Heaton for uh, 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 New Books in Biblical Studies, your host in New Testament and Early Christian Studies. I'll be with you again on your next download, but in the meantime, never stop questioning. Thanks. Bye-bye.
1: Bye.